This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, you're listening to By the Book with Sharmila Ganesan and with me, my fellow Stephen King fan, Lee Chui Lin. A constant reader. Hello. I've said constant reader before. I thought I wouldn't repeat it. But yes, we're both constant readers. We've not hidden it. We're big Stephen King fans on the show. And we're very excited because for this month's book club, uh, we are book clubbing King's latest novel. It's called Fairy Tale. It came out last month. And yeah, so we're both very excited to talk about it. So before we get into the story, right, I think that it would be nice to look at what Stephen King himself has said about the book, which is that it was a book that was written during lockdown. So it's a product of the the lockdowns that happened because of COVID-19. And he said, with all this time on his hands, he wanted to write something that would make him happy. And knowing that makes me really happy because fairy tale, simply put, is a good story well told. There are king flourishes that if you read him a lot um, will feel quite familiar to you. It's not a perfect book. There are shortcuts taken. Uh, Some parts kind of things happen too quickly. There are some characters who are pretty much stock Stephen King characters who could live in a fairy tale land called Empis or could also come from Maine. Uh, (laughs) And and, and that's fine. Uh, I think all of that is okay because the, the story itself is such a rollicking heartwarming, kind of wonderful story to be a part of. I really enjoyed this. I was so happy to spend time and company for 600 odd pages with these characters and the story. I love this book so much and I love it knowing exactly as you said, it's not flawless. Um, Critically, intellectually, I have issues with it in some points. But If I think about it with my heart, if I think about it uh, from the experience of being a reader and also, quite frankly, a lover of both fairy tales and Stephen King, um, I had... I love this book so much. It made me really happy as well. Um, I think it's very important to know. And I've, I've said this actually to everyone that I've talked to about this book, because, you know, the, the thing you hear automatically when you say, oh, a Stephen King book is, oh, no, I'm not sure if I want to read horror. This is a very different kind of Stephen King book. It has the Stephen King flourishes. It has some of the style and, and a, a sort of a wit that you'll recognize. But it's not inherently a terrifying book. It's not horror. It has some parts that are a little bit scary or more disturbing. For what it's worth, without giving too much away, the story circles around a 17-year-old boy called Charlie, who lives with his dad and um, has... A recovering alcoholic. Yes, who is a recovering alcoholic. And the push of the story really begins when he gets to know his neighbour, Mr. Bowditch, who is a much older man and has a fall. And so Charlie ends up helping him. And this leads him down almost a literal rabbit hole uh, where we learn about um, a different land, fairy tale creatures, and really, I think, stories, the meaning of stories, how stories and fairy tales intersect with real life. What is real life? That's all the stuff that's unpacked. I'm really trying not to say things that's going to give things away. I think I can add to that and say that the fairy tale land in question is experiencing as many fairy tale lands do a blight. And <laughs> Charlie is witness to that blight and kind of um, tasked in some senses with helping them. So that's one part of the story. The other character, such an important character that you failed to mention, Sharmila, I am ashamed, is Radar. Radar is a good girl. Radar is um, 
Mr. Bowditch's dog, whom Charlie falls in love with as he befriends Mr. Bowditch. Everyone falls in love with Rada. Rada's the best. Literally no one, including the reader, meets Rada and remains unchanged. I hugged my dog so much <laughs> while reading this book because I was just like, you are a good girl and so is Rada. Um, but yeah, Rada is actually a very important part of the story because in, in many ways, she is the, the impetus for a lot of the action that takes place. And it's important, right? Because actually a lot of the things that Charlie and, and a lot of other characters do in this book kind of brazen, semi-stupid things that people might decide to do revolve around their attachment to Rada. Their love. Their love for Rada. And you have to buy into that for you to buy into this story. And so I think the way King wrote this relationship, uh, the way people get attached to animals without overselling it. I mean, if you look at it sort of dispassionately, Rada is like many other good dogs. But I think there's just something very real and human in the way he manages to capture this relationship. The other thing I loved about it is actually really the fact that uh, that thing he does very well in his horror, which is to capture a sort of small town life, um, small lives even, um, ordinary people who then get thrust into extraordinary events. That is really um, a big deal in this book. And I think the interplay between um, there are things that exist that we never knew about uh, and the contrast between that and something as mundane as cleaning a house. um, I love the way he juxtapositions those things. Because the community of characters that we meet in the book are really crucial to getting us emotionally attached attached to the story and to the experience and of wanting to know what happens. Uh, of course, the, the narrative alone has the, the typical Stephen King propulsive quality. It moves forward at a clip. But really, the reason why you want to know why things happen is because you care for Charlie. Uh, you care for his father. You care for Mr. Bowditch and Rada. And then you care about the other people that he meets when he finds himself underground but not underground in this totally different land and a lot of these characters um, you only meet for a chapter or two but then after that their their presences loom large right when when charlie thinks about why am i doing this why am i why am i part of this why am i fighting for this place um it it is because of the people he meets, like Dora, like Woody. And and these are people who, like Claudia, um, and these are people that only kind of entered his story peripherally. But even you as a reader get a sense of who they are and and how they care for... um, how they care for him, but also their historical ties within that land. And all of that is sketched out very quickly in just a matter of pages. And I think that speaks to Stephen King's skill in terms of characterization, but also in exactly what you said, being able to draw the details of small lives, um, intimately done, and making that smallness important, right? Like talking about how small lives matter. (laughs) That's the message of this story. Well, now that you've brought up Dora and Claudia and Woody, um, let's talk about the world building a little bit, right? Because um, the book is called Fairy Tale and and the building blocks of the fairy tale land, um, in fact, lies in the roots of many stories that we might already recognize. And what I found so interesting was that it's not just the literal fairy tales, although things like Jack and the Beanstalk or Rumpelstiltskin are referenced quite often. But Stephen King also makes a case for 
in some ways his own ilk as forming the fairy tales of our present time, right? Whether it's making references to Cujo at one point, um, but also H.P. Lovecraft, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, there are some parts of the book um, where Charlie is on a journey that feels like Wizard of Oz because he almost does the like picking up new people and new friends along the way thing. He's on a road. Yeah, a yeah, literal road. A literal road. Um, and so I, I loved how the world building of this book relies not just on introducing you to a new space and a new world and new characters, but also plays on the things that you already know. So when a certain kind of character pops up um, and they're described in a certain way, you already know because you know the fairy tale context and how these characters might function. So does Charlie. Yes. The other part of this is Charlie himself is, he's not an unreliable narrator. In fact, he is a, a true blue, good at heart American boy uh, with the usual, I suppose, darknesses and imperfections that come from any person who, who isn't perfect. But before he makes his way or as he makes his way through this world or as he prepares himself to make this journey, he does the research, which means that even if you are not somebody who grew up loving fairy tales, or even if you don't necessarily buy into or believe the power of story, um, you, you're not interested in multiverse and, and, and that kind of thing, um, the the book does enough for you to understand through Charlie's research where Stephen King is coming from, which is a neat trick again, because then even if you don't come at it uh, the way we do with this um, real love of fairy tale and mythology, you still get there. You know what's a neat trick is Stephen King deciding that he couldn't realistically write a 17-year-old of today and so decides to make that 17-year-old Pretty much an old soul. He's right? 50. The things he does, he watches Turner classic movies, he reads books, actual books, um, talks about libraries. Um, and, and I thought, you know, this is kind of sweet. Look, there are parts of this book where you're like, this is not what a 17-year-old of today would sound like. But I'm willing to give 75-year-old Stephen King quite a lot of leeway in that sense. I did think he was very clever with the way he crafted Charlie so that, yes, he's 17, but he kind of also is this kind of guy. I think he felt emotionally real and that was enough to get you through the it slaps lexicon. <laughs> of, the you know, slang, the yeah. slang that he does. What's that? There's the awesome? Is that there's a particular one that awesome uses? Awesome sauce. Awesome sauce, Which, my God. Yes. Yeah, so, so there are specific things where I'm like, I, I'm not sure. You know, Stephen King... At this point, I think we're talking about him interacting with like grandchildren because even his children yeah. would not be the correct age um, to kind of help inform the lexicon of Charlie. So I think what's important here is that Charlie feels emotionally real and that you believe him and buy into him. Even if, if you spoke to him in real life, you'd be like, where did you grow up? <laughs> what is happening? It helps for me to think of Charlie not as a teenager of today, but of uh, a teenager of maybe like a three decades ago. That helped. And except for when he like references an iPhone and then I'm like, oh, right. Okay. But just small and it's not a complaint, just an observation. We're talking about Fairy Tale, which is Stephen King's latest novel. Let us know. Have you read it? Are you a fan of Stephen King? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Break from monotony. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. It's our monthly book club episode and we are book clubbing Stephen King's fairy tale. It came out last month and uh, 
It's quite a romp, I have to say. Um, we've made it sound fun and um, interesting and joyful, and it's all of those things. I did want to talk about how it's also quite dark. Not quite dark. It's very dark in some parts. Is it dark or is it sad? To me, it's both, right? And I think the darkness comes from the fact that Charlie himself acknowledges um, how he has dark parts within himself. And for a 17-year-old to have these thoughts or to act on these thoughts sometimes does feel a little dark. The experiences that he goes through are also very dark. But ultimately, I think you're not left feeling disturbed. You're left feeling sad. So the reason why at the beginning when you were uh, talking through the story, I kind of leaped in to say that it's important to know that Mr. Reed, uh, Charlie's father, is a recovering mm. alcoholic is because that informs so much of the book. It's a huge part of the the first quarter, maybe. And after that, even throughout the story, it's something that Charlie keeps referring back to. And that is in some ways I mean, we also keep talking about his dad and that's because his mother died in a very violent and senseless accident. That's what the book opens with. So Charlie's darkness doesn't come from nowhere. And that's important because the book refers to a well of darkness within Charlie from which he draws strength. Um, and there is also a literal well mm. within the story from which that happens. And and the comparison between the two is effective for that reason, because you understand, um, firstly, most of us have dark parts. So I think having that acknowledgement that you can be dark and still be a hero was very was was cool and nice for what I perceive to be the age range of the reader that Stephen King imagines this book for because it is a book for adults but not only I think um, I, I feel like you could be a fifteen year old or a like between a thirteen to fifteen year old and read this book and get a whole lot out of it, um, especially from the character. So to me, the darkness was effective because of that, because um, things didn't happen that were senseless. That's important. When there's violence, when bad stuff happens, when sad things happen, um, there, there, is a, there is a sense to it. There is a narrative reason for it. The reason why I said sad earlier is because the stuff that's harder to contend with is the fear of death. or 100%. What happens, not even the fear, the reality of death. Mm. The fact is that people might be in your life one minute and then they go out to buy fried chicken and they never come home, you know? And the the faint but persistent sense of foreboding that Stephen King infuses into this book, again, that horror sensibility, goes a long way towards making it feel sometimes very, very sad because you're like, well, this is inevitable. Well, Mr. Bowditch is almost wholly a really sad character. And I don't mean that in a that he's unreadable or he's not nice to be with in the book. But what happens to him is sad. He's an old man living on his own for years and years and years. What happens to him is sad. And later how Charlie perceives him and realizes that what he saw was not necessarily who Mr. Bowditch was. That yes. was sad too. And the book, um, and again, this I think is the maybe me reading a little bit into uh, an author who's himself older. Um, because yeah, you said this. I didn't feel th there's this. There's been a number of parts in this book, I think. Maybe, see, I'm coming back back to Stephen King after a very long time. Huge fan, but I haven't read him probably for about a decade properly now. So I think coming back and I think a lot of this is like, oh, he's older now. My favorite author is, is you know, towards the twilight years and then reading him writing about a man who um, needs care, who can't go to the toilet by himself, the fear of, um, you know, being alone and yet not wanting to rely on people. All of those felt very profound to me. And then, of course, there are all of these other things, right? Um, a whole group of people who are 
essentially facing a slowly progressive condition um, in the yeah. fairy tale land. Um, things like that. Those are the parts that are both, um, I think, really cross that line between something being dark, but also ultimately feeling quite existential in a, in, in a very sad way. So I get that. I don't know whether it was because I didn't want to think about it, mm. um, but particularly the degradation of a land and its people and the inexorable inexorable quality to it. The fact that people are just slowly being drawn on further and further into something that they cannot control. I, I get the correlation between that and degenerative diseases, right? So with Stephen King, though, and the idea of him being in his twilight years, I contest that. I mean, maybe he feels that way. I don't know. Um, I He shouldn't. Yeah. I don't think he should. I, I think he should write forever. I feel um, that part of why he can write so well about re recuperation and rehabilitation is because he famously went through that. Of course. So, you know, he didn't recover from a fall. He recovered from getting crushed by a van. So it's kind of, he has that kind of knowledge about it. But I feel as if Stephen King has always said that writing is what he does. You know, writing is in many ways how he lives his life. And I felt like this was a continuation. I, I feel as if this is somebody at the top of their powers. And so I didn't really feel that sense of, oh, no. Um, <laughs> instead, I was like, yeah, go you, keep writing. <laughs> oh, so that part, so all of the things I said earlier about the fact that like, oh, you're writing about a teenage boy. You're taking on a, a genre that is not necessarily what you're known for. It's so cool when you think about a writer of his age who, who still wants to experiment, who's still churning out the books. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, because I love this about this book, is the structure. Um, you talked about foreboding. Um, one of the ways in which he does this is it's very clear from the start of the book that you're not reading it as it happens. In fact, it's Charlie in some indeterminate future sort of commenting back on this experience that he went through. Wanting to write everything down so that it could be there, yes. so, so that he could remember. But then there'll be these allusions to something, like he'll meet someone and he'll go, well, that guy, you'll see what happens later. Or worse yet, as they open a door, something like, you never see the big mistakes till later, do yes. you? Yeah. And so actually the foreboding feeling in this book is rarely about a horror. It's more about, is Radar going to make it? Is Dad going to be there at the end of the book? I know the answers. And yet when you say it, I feel no, like crying. I, I, because I remember <laughs> what it's like reading the book. I was clutching every page, hoping that the next page wouldn't be when, you know, the inevitable might happen. And I thought that was genius. I, I was really impressed at the way the structure of the book allows for that. And he does it repeatedly. So this is what I mean by you can see Stephen King's tricks. If you've been reading... Stephen King long enough, then you know that there are some things that he knows how to do very well and you can see the strings. It doesn't necessarily detract or take or, or stop you from like lifting your hand and dancing like a marionette <laughs> because you see the string, but you still do it. And I think it's kind of like that because every time he would do this thing, this exact thing that we're talking about of, oh, if I had only known then what I know now, but alas, and then you're like, who dies? Yeah. What is going to happen? Or he'll say, my dad's a good man. Worth saying again. Yeah. Um, and, and that will be like the fifth time. Doesn't detract from it because it, it somehow still added on to the emotional heft of the book. There is a comparison I'd like to make and I can't remember whether you've read the Dark Tower series. I haven't. I've read the first two. Right. But not the whole thing. Um, so I finished the Dark Tower. It was a very big deal. Um I was one of those people who, uh, you know, kind of waited with bated breath for their publication. So to me, 
I know others have compared it to Eyes of the Dragon, which is another Stephen King kind of fantasy, not really horror-inflected, straight straight up story. Um, but there were some parts of this that reminded me of The Dark Tower because of the, the transit between worlds, because mm. of the creation of a completely different world and a completely different way of speaking, which... You know, I think if you don't go with it, can easily come across as cheesy or downright corny, right? Because once they make it to Empis, the other land, um, Charlie eventually slips into uh, a version of their language. and he, I love that, by the way. Mm, me too. Yeah. But I can see how if, if you're not willing to go with it. Um, I mean, the solution for that is also something equivalent to the the babelfish in um, in Douglas yes. Adams, right? It's, it's not really explained. It's just something that's happening. So... I was thinking about the, I was comparing the world creation between something like a dark tower, which is much darker and much more horror filled and this and just thinking, man, Stephen King's been doing this for a long time and I admired how distinct the worlds felt. In his earlier books, there was a determination very often to draw a lot of worlds back to the Dark Tower. So mm. Roland, for example, or the, men in bl- the man in black or whatever would show up. They show up in the stand, show up in other books, you know, as if ultimately everything came back to Dark Tower verse. This lives separate from that and and it feels separate from that. And yet it also feels as immediate and concrete as the world that was created in Dark Tower. And I admired that. So just to close off, I was going to ask, um, because I have thoughts on this, uh, we're both big Stephen King fans, so we didn't need much convincing to pick this up. Would you recommend this to someone who was a King newbie? Yes, because... Uh, I think it showcases, like we said earlier, a lot of the stuff... Look, I'm not a horror fan. I, I think <laughs> I think I've said this before. Yes. Um, I, I'm not a fan of horror. I neither read it nor, nor watch it. I mean, I'm getting better now that I'm getting older, but it's broadly speaking not my favourite genre. So I don't read Stephen King for the horror. I read Stephen King because I love his writing. And because of that... As we said, this kind of has a lot of vintage Stephen King feels and it has his love of character, his love of story, his love of adventure. So yes, I would recommend it. I would 100% recommend it. Just to call back to something you said earlier, I would recommend it to younger readers as well, um, teenagers and upwards. If you're a book nerd, if you love stories, if you love fairy tales, I think this would be a great one. I don't think you need to be even familiar at all with Stephen King or his style, um, which is a nice thing to say because Stephen King's not the easiest to sell or recommendation to someone because they automatically think they need to be okay with it. I was going to say, everyone sees that clown, yeah. that clown, or like imagines Pet Cemetery. Yes. And, you know, not everybody's in the mood for that. But we've been talking about Fairy Tale by Stephen King, his latest book. Let us know. Have you read it? Are you a fan of him in general? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. to footnotes from 
a stalwart of horror. We're moving on to talking about a stalwart in comics. A reluctant stalwart, I should say. Well, yeah, and also someone who hasn't actually written in comics for a long time. In decades, yeah. really. Uh, so we're going to be discussing Alan Moore, and this is on the wake of an article, an interview with Alan Moore, actually, that's just come out um, earlier this month in The Guardian. It's called Watchman Author Alan Moore. I'm definitely done with comics. <laughs> and so you can see where this is going. To be fair... Alan Moore's been quite cantankerous about comics and um, his works and the way people adapt his works for quite a long time. But this one's really interesting because he makes a lot of remarks about uh, even just the place that he thinks comic books and comic book adaptations hold in the world and how he's not so much a fan of that. I think it's best to hear it in his own words because um, th- there's a lot of ways in which mm. we could misinterpret or or paraphrase inaccurately and I don't want to do that because it's quite a nuanced point. So he says um, hundreds of thousands of adults are lining up to see characters and situations that had been created to entertain the 12-year-old boys, and it was always boys, of 50 years ago. I didn't really think that superheroes were adult fare. I think that this was a misunderstanding born of what happened in the 1980s, to which I must put my hand up to a considerable share of the blame, though it was not intentional when things like Watchmen were first appearing. There were an awful lot of headlines saying comics have grown up. I tend to think that no, comics hadn't grown up. There were a few titles that were more adult than people were used to, but the majority of comics titles were pretty much the same as they'd ever been. It wasn't comics growing up. I think it was more that comics were meeting the emotional age of the audience coming the other way. He goes on to say... I said round about 2011 that I thought that it had serious and worrying implications for the future if millions of adults were queuing up to see Batman movies because that kind of infantilization that urged towards simpler times, simpler realities, that can very often be a precursor to fascism. So some very strong statements, right? And it's it's interesting to read this within the context of the time that we live in where Disney Plus is a thing. They own this entire huge MCU library. uh, And then as a counterpoint, you have DC trying to, well, just do the same but darker. Uh, And and I don't think I agree with Alan Moore completely, but I also see what he's saying in the sense that comic books now have become so ubiquitous, uh, but they're not necessarily saying much that's new. Um, And in fact, in some ways, they're just perpetuating the same idea again and again without trying to be we now live in a world where even being even commenting on comic books like the boys or watchmen or um invincible is already passe so where else is there to go this is gonna sound really facetious and i i don't mean it to be it's hard to be a visionary isn't it I say this because I think it's important that Alan Moore acknowledges the role that he himself has played in this discourse becoming what it is. Because prior to to him, prior to your Neil Gaiman's and, and all the rest of it, Nobody thought comic books were graphic novels. The the distinction between what is a comic mm. and what is a novel, very clear. Um, aside from serialization, there was also the, the expected seriousness of tone. Uh, there was the depth of story. It used to be fine that basically comics were archies with superheroes, mm. right? But the stakes are like that. It's it's like neighborhood stakes. Or no one dies. You can always revive everybody. It's a couple of pages. Not, not a couple of pages, but it's not, you know, from hell. Mm. So like, it is worth acknowledging that it is in some ways Alan Moore's own 
artistry and command of story and um, specific viewpoint that he brought to the novels that have to the comics novels that have since gone on to inform the way people talk so seriously about the genre that is part of the problem because I hesitate to say for example that um, all and I don't even think that's the point he's making but I hesitate to say that all graphic novels are, or all comic books are infantilizing. I don't think that that's the case. Um, and I certainly don't want hordes of Batman and Superman fans coming for me um, when I say that I I kind of see the point, though, when that superheroes, especially superheroes like that, who have been more or less the same for a very long time, are held up as emblems of nuance or capable of withstanding a lot of critical thought. I, I don't think that they always are. And it's not just the nuance that he's talking about, right? Because he's also making a point about how these symbols, which may start off being subversive. So he talks about how Superman um, was initially created by Jewish working class mm-hmm. people and it was supposed to be a commentary on um, uh, capitalism and New Deal America, but then becomes co-opted and becomes commercialized. And and I think that's a fair point to make because someone, something like the X-Men, who often have these sort of queer readings and are meant to be about inclusion and subculture, eventually become a part of the very machine that they were created to critique. So there's that. I just couldn't stop laughing because when you said it's hard to be a visionary, <laughs> I was staring at the pictures that they've used of Alan Moore in this article. And I'm just like, could they have made him look any more like a crazy harbinger, harbinger of doom? I don't think he takes photos that make him look any other way, right? Though. It's just like Gandalf gone wrong. That's yeah, just the how beard he looks. And, yeah. But it's. I also think the other thing is, what does it mean for someone like Alan Moore and his legacy, right? That the thing that you're celebrated for, and he's a genius. I mean, his work is genius. But I don't know. I, I hope to some extent that he understands that what he does matters. He's been disassociating himself from it for a very long yeah. time, though. This is not the first kind of move away or, um, you know, public saying, well, actually, I, I, I don't like being associated with this. He hasn't disavowed his work. So no. it, it is... Um, Though he hates the adaptations, yes. almost uniformly. Yes. So I think the distinction to be made here to a degree is that he hasn't disavowed his work or his writing. I think what he's grappling with maybe is the impact that they have had and the impact that comics at large have had on society. And making that distinction is tough when you're talking about someone as influential as Alan Moore, but it's an important one to make. He does like the fact that the Guy Fawkes mask um, has become from V for Vendetta. So I'm just going to read the quote because as you said, best in his words, I can't endorse everything that people who take that mask as an icon might do, but I'm heartened to see that it has been adopted by protest movements so widely across the world because we do need protest movements now probably more than we've ever done before. I mean... Uh, that that just about sums it up, right? It's a very interesting interview. Um, I would say that if you've got time and if you like comic books and Alan Moore and that Venn diagram overlap is quite large, um, it's on The Guardian and it's called Watchman Author Alan Moore. I am definitely done with comics. It was written by Sam Leith. Let us know. Are you a fan of Alan Moore? Do you agree with his views on comic books? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.
listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.